Hello and welcome to the Needle Mythology Podcast with me, Pete Pavides, brought to you in proud association with Flare Audio and their game-changing jet earphones. This is an irregular podcast in which I invite one of my favourite musicians to talk primarily, although not exclusively, about a classic album in their canon and about another classic record that had a life-changing effect on them. The gentleman joining me today put out his first record, a mini-album entitled A Victory for the Comic Muse, all of 29 years ago. Oh, God. (laughs) Even those of us who enjoyed the albums that followed it, Liberation and Promenade, didn't imagine that pop stardom would have occasion to visit him anytime soon. But that all changed with the release of his 1996 album, Casanova, which yielded three top 30 singles and made him a familiar face in the nebulous de facto movement that would come to be known as Britpop. The success of that record and the two that came immediately after it, a short album about love and fantasy echo, afforded him the freedom to allow his musical instincts to wonder without having to worry too much about hit singles and for his loyal fans it's been a continuing joy to map his creative trajectory through latter-day divine comedy albums such as absent friends victory for the comic muse and 2016's foreverland from that period songs such as leaving today a lady of a certain age mother dear when a man cries catherine the great and to the rescue stand shoulder to shoulder with the best of what preceded them to those we can add a bunch more from his two albums as part of his cricket-based side project the Duckworth Lewis Method and there's also a new Divine Comedy album ready to go and I can tell you that it's quite magnificent I hope that we're allowed to talk a little bit about that but ostensibly what we're here to discuss is the period of time leading up to and beyond Casanova and also our guests nominated record from another artist which is Dare by the Human League if he's still awake I'd like to welcome Neil Hannon from the Divine Comedy hello Neil hi Pete Thank you for having me. You did actually sound like you fell asleep during that interview. <laughs> no, I, I was just exploding with blushing. <laughs> does that does that kind of pricey of your creative journey make you feel like you've been alive for 200 years? <clears throat> it certainly makes me feel quite um, tired uh, just thinking of all the work. <laughs> yeah, But, uh, you know, we're roughly the same age, so you know what it's like. It's a blessing to keep going, to be in a position to keep going. Absolutely. Yeah. Our expectations suitably battered by the proceeding. <laughs> yes, embittered and <laughs> tired. It is just an astonishment to me that I am still here, you know, mm. especially after you mentioned the first mini album and, you know, the, the sort of weird oddities that I came out with in the early 90s. Um, but then again, you know, I stand by them. I, the funny thing is, even with the oddities, I was always main, trying to make pop records. Yeah. You know, it it wasn't as if I was just kind of trying to be obscure and weird. I just have a funny way about it. 
That's all. I think that's true of a lot of artists who maybe come to be regarded as not straight down the line pop artist or pop stuff. Everyone's trying to do their version of pop music. It just varies wildly from person to person. Indeed. I was just checking that the red light was on and that it was rolling. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad someone's paying attention to <laughs> What was that again? Sorry. No, it's just, every, you know, apart from if you're like Scott Walker making his most recent album, I think everyone's trying to make a version of pop music, aren't they? I think so. I do like a good tune. I always have a reasonably kind of uh, whistleable uh, melody, tune, lyric, and... Just sometimes the things that you're trying to say don't quite fit into that, you know. I read somewhere that you would always send a, a copy of your most recent album to Scott Walker. I did it in the early days. Um, I, I was so obsessed by him. As soon as I discovered him, because obviously he was just waiting for me to discover him, <laughs> 1989, I think, and... Um, it's probably one of the, the only true obsessions I've ever had, you know. And it had such an impact on me that um, I've really not been able to sing like anybody else ever since, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what was the moment where, you know, you just hear a song and suddenly, or it might be the third song or something, but, you know, there, there is like the trip switch goes and suddenly you have to seek out every note recorded by that. What, what was that moment for you? The moment I heard the sun ain't gonna shine anymore, I thought that is like everything I've ever dreamed of. Just like huge, romantic, dark, orchestral. And I went and got it and I never looked back. Yeah. So it was the Walker Brothers at least initially and then that I mean I, yes I, I, but then Scott was so much sort of more to, to listen to and richer and yeah. kind of uh, more more of a wholesome meal absolutely yeah I was very lucky in as much as um, just by chance my best friend's dad was an obsessive Scott Walker fan and this was around 1981 and the only other person going uh, going on about Scott Walker at this point was Julian Cope oh yeah, yeah and yeah. um so Scott Walker was this this name that I associated with the guy from The Tudor Explodes, who I loved, yeah. and Jeff, my friend's dad, who was just <laughs> like who was completely normal in every other regard. He ran a furniture shop on the outskirts of Birmingham, and he he was just a normal dad in Birmingham. Yeah. But he would always want to have a conversation with anyone who was listening to about Scott Walker. Oh. So, you know, I feel a huge sort of debt of gratitude to those and, two and people. And did, uh, did your parents uh, have musical leanings? They did, but they were, well, they were and still are Greek and Greek Cypriot. Yeah. And so we listened to Greek oh. music in the house, as well as ABBA, which was my dad. <laughs> the only Western group that my dad thought was as good as anything Greek was ABBA. I'm with him on that. Yeah. Yes. ABBA. Quickly, my... ABBA top three. ABBA top three. Uh, well, the very best song probably ever written is The Winner Takes It All. And then up there is probably also Take a Chance on Me. And I really, really like um, Two for the Price of One, the second side of uh, The Tourist. Yeah. Of, uh, sex side of the visitors. The visitors, that's yeah. it. Yeah. It 
quite dubious in its lyric, but really great production and sound. That's an interesting one. We need to explain two for the price of one, don't we? Really, <laughs> I'm not sure we ought in this uh, Me Too uh, generation. I think a man on a train platform is reading a paper and he sees an ad that says, "If you phone this number, you can get two uh, ladies for the price of one." They related? I, I can't remember. No, I, 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 don't, I mean, I, see, I've always kind of skipped that song. What music were your parents playing in your house? My dad was playing Chopin on the piano. Uh, my mum was trying gamely to sing Fill the Fluter's Ball while washing up. Uh, she uh, is not really musically inclined. and okay. uh, But my dad was just classical music and a bit of fat swaller for fun, you know. <laughs> for fun. Yeah. <laughs> but my brothers, you say I had two elder brothers. So everything I uh, got was like third hand. <laughs> but that's great because it gives you a head start. Absolutely, it? yeah. Um, that made a big old clunk. <laughs> so this is, I'd like to welcome back into the room, Natalie, <laughs> no, Neil's manager. She hates who that. Has, who's bringing the coffee <laughs> and appears not to be, want to be acknowledged in any other way. <laughs> Thanks, Natalie. <laughs> I had a similar thing. I had an older brother who who sort of meant that I was exposed to people like Echo and the Bunnymen and Orange Juice at an earlier age than I might otherwise. Is it was similar with you? Sadly, Des had slightly different um, tastes. ELO was the big thing for him. I still uh, love them to bits. You've covered Mr. Blue Sky, haven't you? I have. I love the way you put the emphasis on sky there. Mr. Yeah. Blue Sky. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that's the kind of thing uh, Paul Gambaccini would do on, uh, <laughs> on Pick of the Pops. I always just thought the key is the word blue in the, in the sky, <laughs> that, that it's blue and not grey, you know. <laughs> you know, with time, as I became an indie kid, you know, and then Scott Walker and everything else, that those sort of faded a little bit. But then, you know, in latter years, you just have to take them sort of for what they are, which are enormous, epic pop records, you know, with great hooks and great sort of thought, you know, in the arrangements. And that's the best thing about them. Absolutely. I think another thing that happens is as you get into middle age, records which are made with an absolutely garlessly benign intent just become almost profound in the in in the sort of the effect that they have on you. I know exactly what you mean. You kind of want people to shut up and stop sort of uh, trying to intellectualize on you. You want something kind of more innocent than that, you know. Yeah. So your father so you mentioned your father in Chopin. Was that was that his go-to? Was that his lodestone composer? <clears throat> Um, chapeau, uh, chapeau <laughs> Chapopetipan, yes. Yeah. Uh, Debussy, Rachmaninoff, he was a total romantic. And um, he could get with certain kind of uh, nice modern stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really not enunciating this correctly. Basically, he liked Enya when she came along, you know. <laughs> and why wouldn't you? Why Perfectly wouldn't you, good. You? The arrangements on your records inclined towards 
you know, these classical arrangements, increasingly ambitious as time went on. Um, how did your father sort of connect with that? Did he still see it as pop or did he actually see that maybe the distance between your sensibilities and his maybe not as great in, as one might have thought? <sighs> I'd say you've got to ask him, but he's got Alzheimer's, so you can't. But he uh, he he really, really loved uh, certain things I did. He was absolutely obsessed with I've Been to a Marvellous Party, our cover of the Noel Coward song. I went to a marvellous party with Nuno and Nada and Nell. It was in the fresh... Which, you know, goes into hardcore trance. Um, so that was a bit of a shock. <laughs> what did he like? That is... I think, I think he, like he, he got the joke, which a lot of people didn't. Yeah, yeah. Which was, you know, wouldn't it be fun to kind of do Noel Coward just as no pure Noel Coward, man at a piano, being slightly sort of poncy for want of a better term, and uh, then suddenly boom, 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 kicks in. I mean, I laughed, and so why shouldn't he? How lovely though! How lovely that he got that. Yes, absolutely. I have to ask you. I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself here you know but because we talk, we're in that area i wanted to ask you about um to our fathers in distress oh yeah which was a sort of half hour classical piece who commissioned it um the the south bank yeah pulling out the stops it was a festival that was kind of prompted by their their refurbishment of their enormous organ in the royal festival hall and i thought yeah i'll give that a shot you know, just doing, you know, orchestral music or, or concert music, as they like to call it. When there's no kind of, this has to be three minutes and get on Radio 2 boundaries, it becomes really hard, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Uh, I dedicated it to my father and, um, you know, it, I just decided to try and remember an average sort of Sunday in um, our family life back in the sort of 70s, 80s. Uh, because, you know, he couldn't remember, so I thought I'd give it a go. And um, I'd spent so long trying not to remember yeah. a lot of stuff that it was really refreshing to sit down and consciously try and remember it all. And presumably you, you played it to him when you finished it. Um, it, it he uh, was with my mum in Fermanagh listening to it on the radio because it was broadcast, and um, he didn't really register it, sadly, but, you okay. know... Am I right in understanding that with Alzheimer's, if your your memories of earlier sort of events in your life tend to be clearer than more recent ones? Is that right? Um, it, yes, but then all of these things gradually become sort of uh, less relevant, and uh, you know it all goes after time. It's a it's a utterly beautiful piece of work, and, oh, but it's not you. actually available anywhere, is it? Um, no, no. I mean, you can find it on the YouTube. <laughs> But uh, I, I must sort of really sort of get it recorded properly one day. By a circuitous route, we're kind of getting towards the sort of thing that we're ostensibly here to discuss. I went back and listened to Casanova as a sort of piece of work for the first time. I'm glad someone did here. I kind <laughs> well, of no, did. you would. I get but, <laughs> artists don't, by and large, go back and do that, do they? It's a lot harder for us, and it's not because it's not a pleasurable experience. It's just you really have to take a deep breath and mm. kind of, you know, be, uh, a lot, a lot of 
um, average record-buying punters say how attached they are to a record because it reminds them of a certain time. Well, you, if you're the person who wrote it, times that by a thousand. I met a girl, she was a frog If I listen to Casanova now, it's like I, I suddenly see Brian Mills in his pants in the recording studio with, with you know. Brian Mills <laughs> was your bassist, wasn't he? Yeah, how, how do you know that? I used to know, I, I, I used to be quite good friends with Brian back Were in you? the day. Yeah, oh, if uh, I'll see guy. him, I'll We lost our old tour manager, Dean Kennedy, a few uh, days ago. Really? Uh, yeah. It knocks you for six. A few C- days ago, did you say? Yeah, like a week ago. Oh, my word. Um, and uh, obviously not very old, but um, he didn't treat his body as a temple, shall we say. Having been on the road with Dr. Feelgood in the 1970s, you, you know, okay, he, yeah, he was yeah, a true man of the road. But uh, when you've spent so much time in somebody's you know, pocket um, yeah. on the road. It's like a big deal when I'm they're not there anymore. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Casanova. One thing that strikes me as interesting, so having to read a lot of retrospective pieces about it, you know, the word Britpop keeps coming up because Britpop didn't exist. It wasn't a thing. That wasn't a word. So <laughs> you can't have known you, whatever this thing Britpop is, you can't have known you were making a record. No. That- Although the funny thing is, I mean, I've always said I kind of subconsciously saw which way the wind was blowing. Ah. Because, you know, I'd listen to Synthetium, for example. You know, they were kind of slightly pre-Britpop. Yeah. And yet they were kind of starting to, you know, use the easy listening influences and the references to old movies and things yeah, like yeah. that. Uh, and so the, that kind of uh, revisiting of essentially 60s culture yeah. was a big part of Britpop. And I think I was kind of going, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> and then, you know, I heard his and hers, uh, Pulp, and thought, aha! <laughs> Is lift glass and cigarettes It's perhaps at the end of the day When it's given the rest To someone with long black hair He was becoming a pop star at that point I know, and uh, I was loving it Because I thought, if he can do it Pretty much anyone can, you know Um, What do you remember when Pulp were like You know, the idea of Jarvis Cocker being a pop star I know It's just like, no one in the world would I know, and wasn't there like a copy of Select or Vox or something with like, which pretty much said, I don't know whether it said Britpop on the front, but it said, here are the British artists that are going to now rule everything, we tell you. Were you in that one? No. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. I was always on the periphery of all of this, to be honest. Uh, People did lump me in with it, and I wasn't averse to it, to be honest, because I'd grown up not being in anybody's gang and being fairly 
annoyed about it. <laughs> yeah. So to suddenly, like, you're a Britpop, you know. There was a part, a food party, that was, uh, you know, Blur's record company, where uh, Damon came up to me, totally legless, put his arm around me and said, you're Britpop, mate, you are. He's a 20th century boy. I went, well, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Alborn. <laughs> but uh, I'm actually from Ireland. He said, yeah, but Northern Ireland, that's Britain, isn't it? <laughs> I said, well, technically, it's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And he, and he just wandered off at that yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing, because that's interesting that he was using the word Britpop. He was. He really was. I was astonished myself. And I thought, yeah, if, if anyone can, he can. It's amazing. And hold on for tomorrow. It sounds like I was actually going to all the parties, uh, but it, w- it wasn't like that at all. I, I didn't know where anybody hung out. Well, I, you were relatively new in London yeah. still at that point. I, that I was right? living in a bedsit in Brixton, slaving over the record because that's all I knew how to do. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> It kind of happened very suddenly with you on that record, didn't it? Who started playing uh, something for the weekend? That was a certain Mr. Christopher Evans. It was. Yeah, who uh, from then on took credit, basically. (laughs) He's right. He made such a fuss over it, you know getting the plugger out of his shower to get him down to the studio with a copy of the record, you know. Then he played it like three times in the one show. She said there's something in the wood shed and I can hear it breathing It's such an eerie feeling Darling It's exciting but also a bit terrifying, I would imagine maybe sort of seeing... No, I was ready for it. I mean, I was 25 and I was just like a ball of, you know, pop energy. I'd lived my whole life for this moment, you know. I grew up on uh, Human League, Adam Ant and uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I absolutely believed 100% in pop music and Top of the Pops. And I wanted it really badly. <laughs> well, fair play. I mean, can you remember who else was on top of the pops the week that you first did it? Gosh, the week that I first did it, I have no recollection. I remember doing it once and uh, Kylie Minogue introducing us, like standing in <laughs> front of me. And I'm thinking, I'm being introduced by Kylie Minogue on top of the pops. Life can't get any better than this. No, no. <laughs> well, you're told it. Right, we can begin. My name is Alfie. Once there was a time when my mind lay on higher things. There was an exciting time for all sorts of reasons because obviously there was... Um, this was a bit like the 60s in the sense that if you just kind of managed to just get to London, <laughs> then you, you yeah. sort of had a I shot. hope there's nobody out there going, Go! Oh, I didn't get myself to that place! <laughs> That's what went wrong in my life. <laughs> uh, believe me, it's not true. Other stuff has to be going on as well. But there was that lovely sort of crossover where, you know, because I'd not long been living in London either, and I sort of befriended the Father Ted guys, Arthur mm. and Graham. 
and I'd be following your progress anyway to see you have success and then to see this amazing thing happening to these guys as well. Yeah. It did rather sort of seem like... All my friends are... <laughs> well, like, you know, like the, the ground was being levelled and so if you had a good idea and you were good, you were good at it, then mm. you could sort of bust down those doors I, a little bit. I think uh, it was one of those eras when... Uh, it accidentally let through some interesting people, you know, mm. into mainstream media. But I think it was an accident, and uh, they closed the doors as quickly as possible, the money men. Yeah, and not to forget Graham and Arthur's influence on my career as well by asking for a theme tune. Uh, which helped a good deal. But the first thing you submitted was not what was used, is that right? Well, I was I was writing the songs that would be on Casanova and I had two that I thought sounded a bit sitcom-y. Right. Uh, songs of Love, because it was a bit Irish, and uh, A Woman of the World, because it was a bit Some Mothers Do Have Them, <laughs> with a kind of... A... <laughs> And I played it to uh, Graham and Arthur and uh, Jeffrey Perkins, the producer, and uh, Graham and Arthur both went, Woman of the World, that is a great tune. It's perfect sitcom. And uh, then <laughs> Jeffrey goes, no, we'll have the other one. <laughs> <laughs> he was so right. Um, it kind of just lasted and, and married itself up with the imagery. Pale, pubescent beasts roam through the streets and coffee shops Their prey gather in herds The stiff knee-length skirts And white ankle socks Do you know the funny fact about the theme tune to Some Mothers Do Have Them? I don't know if it's true. Is it Ronnie Hazelhurst? Yeah. And did he, like, take the capital letters of the... Is that what happened? Close. He did a code. Yeah, apparently it's Morse. So <laughs> if you do some other... The, the <laughs> I don't know how that works though, with Morse. True. If that's true, he's... Well, he's a genius anyway, but... So many memorable tunes. Uh, what were the other ones? Um, did he do Are You Being Served? Yeah. And to the manor born, and uh, uh, yes, minister, and uh, last of the summer wine, uh, allo, allo, God, he did them all. I didn't realise you were so. Uh, <laughs> I love themes. <laughs> Deep Hazelhurst. <laughs> Fantastic. were ready for that success so was it all it was sort of cracked up to be i kind of knew that it wasn't meant to be anything useful yeah or in a long term and i was proved to be right it's really fun for a couple of years and it's nice to kind of uh, be noticed and it's nice to have cheering fans you know but after a while you have to make a decision i think you know within you whether you're actually going to try and chase after this forever yeah. or you're going to go, 
Well, that was fun, but it's kind of silly, and let's try and just concentrate on the work now. I guess you know? it, it bought you that time and freedom and space, didn't it? Yeah, although it's quite hard to let go of. You know, I did have to sort of wrestle with it for a few years in the mid noughties Right. Kind of, uh, oh, but I want to have a pop. No, no, you, you must just write good music, and there's plenty of people out there who want to hear. Are there songs you. from that period that you kind of wrote thinking, okay, this yeah. might be... Yeah, which there ones? Are. I'm not telling you because I don't want to tarnish them in the ears of people who, who yeah. you know, really like them. I mean, uh, be, people uh, become very wedded to the way things sound. I, I, don't <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> I think don't, if you don't, don't want to say. No, no, if you don't want to say, uh, you shouldn't. And I, I think there's, but I think um, personally, from my point of view, I know of a lot of songs that were written purely to become hits and I adore them and I will always you know like the four tops writing the same old song well no they didn't write it but it was written for them because they needed to a song similar to I can't help myself which was their breakthrough yeah, hit yeah yeah so it's yeah. almost like almost like a contemptuous but it's not because it's a still once the song's out there but it's a fantastic idea it's the same old song with a different meaning since you came along that's brilliant. You it know? Is br- yeah, absolutely. I, it doesn't diminish what it makes you feel, if, even if it was written with a slightly cynical... Content. No, I agree. I agree. But, but I, I still <laughs> don't think you should say. No. I saw a quote from you quite a long time ago now, which you said, um, I think it was around the time of Regeneration, which came out in 2001, where you said you were at the Brits and someone from a boy band came up to you, <laughs> a bit drunk. Mm. I'll read you the quote. Started telling me why he was still proud of himself and his music meant something. I just thought, you don't need to answer to me or anybody. If you want to write songs, fine. Just be who you are. There's enough Wise time. Pa- words. <laughs> There's enough time passed for you to tell me who that boy band member was. Hmm. I'm trying to think of the ramifications. I don't think what I say, you know, really has any impact on these people. Um, yeah, um, to be honest, I can't remember his name. What, who was he in? It's the short one from Take That, with the oh, longer oh, hair. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Mark, Mark Owen. Yeah, that's it. And he's a really nice guy. I've yeah. met him on various occasions, but uh, he was at his real sort of nadir at that point, you know, yeah. just after the, the band had kind of imploded. Yeah. And um, it's like, honestly, you're grand. <laughs> The perception that existed of someone like you, he longed to have that. Is that, the, is that what, the, what and the point And I longed for his money. Needle Mythology is brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flare Audio, inventors of the superb jet earphones. I want to ask you about a couple of individual songs for later years, as much as ended, to make people go and listen to them, really, because uh, if they haven't already heard them. But um, So, for instance, from Bango's The Nighthood, which I think, again, is an album that I would ideally like to kind of frog march more people in the direction of. Me too. When a Man Cries. Yeah. That's, a, that's up there with the very best, I think. Thank you very much. Um, it's like a Charles Aznavour song. <laughs> that actually is a I'm getting divorced song. <laughs> you know? Was it? Yeah. When a child cries, you know about it. They scream and shout until 
I just didn't think that many songs had been written about like that kind of naked outpouring of male emotion and the difference, you know, between how women cry and and children cry. And, and men crying is a horrible thing to see, you know? <laughs> but when a man cries, it's choked and throttled, it's all being bottled up for far too long. And when at last the pressure cooker blows, it's hard to stem the flow. I asked you to nominate an album that um, had a formative effect on you because I, kind of, I always like to do the, the kind of contrast between an album by, by the artist and then to go to a moment in time in their life mm. and talk about what that album represents. You chose Dare by the Human League. Mm. Even though perhaps I wasn't 100% sort of into it at the moment of its arrival because I would have been mm, 10, 11, mm. I think. Was it 81? Yeah, 81, I think. Yeah. But I absolutely uh, adored all the sort of British synth pop from like maybe 9, 10, 11, that, that age. But I wasn't really sort of record buying yeah. by then. And it was more just sort of sitting religiously every uh, Thursday night watching them on top of the pops and thinking well that's the coolest thing I've ever seen you know men standing up straight with one finger on a Roland <laughs> or a Juno or a, a emulator and kind of poking it <laughs> with well, yeah. maybe mirror shades on take time to see something kind of wonderfully different from all the Osmonds <laughs> that I had yeah. seen in my uh, primary school years. Because there was this 12-month period in which suddenly our conception of what it was to be a band was just completely torpedoed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the kids today wouldn't wouldn't know just how regulated you know music was back then. And sure, you know, they would wear silly trousers with big silver stars on them, but they were still a band with a drummer and a bass player and a guitar player. <laughs> and uh, that didn't change at all until suddenly there was like one guy with a synthesizer and the and a strangeling singing. What really strikes me about watching that kind of footage now, and even listening to the music, is with so with a song like "Open Your Heart" from that album, it's actually you know it's quite emotionally stirring music. Oh yeah. Most synth pop seemed to gravitate towards sort of the Motown school of pop songwriting. Maybe it was because they were trying to find ways to inject emotion into these instruments. Or maybe that was what the instruments said to them. I don't know.
Kraftwerk had this kind of ethos of minimum maximum, so like mm. minimum effort, maximum emotion. Yeah. And you kind of really see that when you sort of see these musicians not even close to breaking a sweat because they're playing these monophonic yeah. keyboards. The simplicity is absolutely essential to the whole thing. I always get it wrong when I try to do synth stuff because I'm there playing interesting chords and stuff. But you listen to Dare and it's largely, you know, a bass line, one lead line and the vocal line doing a different thing and then maybe in the exciting bit they'll bring in a new sound. Yeah. And But never, it's, it's totally minimal and because of that it's really powerful. And the detail in the in the uh, the making of it is uh, just beautiful and mind blowing. You know, when, when like a tom fill comes in, you know, it goes do 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 like from one ear to the other. Perfect sound, perfect level, perfect panning, and there's so much space in the music. And while all of this is being serene and kind of uh, monolithic. You've got Phil Oakey just going mental over the top. I believe, I believe what the old man says, though I know that there's no love above. I believe in me, I believe in you, and you know I believe in love. I mean, not, not in a punky way, but just in a kind of real highly emoting uh, and about things beyond our ken. Yeah. <laughs> True. Well, I remember in interviews at the time, I remember look, an interview in Looking Magazine where he, he was just enthusing about... ABBA has been the perfect pop group. <laughs> and again, I just thought, of course I liked ABBA. I wasn't old enough to feel like I had to disown them. But I also liked the Human League as well. So it was just, uh, I felt vindicated by <laughs> the, the, his utterances. There's a song on the new on your upcoming album called uh, Psychological Evaluation. which uh, <laughs> when, Snappy title. It's kind of almost like a questionnaire between you and... An, Mm. automated entity. Yeah, the old vocoders are out in force. But you list all these bands that you loved at the time. I don't know where I got this idea from, but I thought, wouldn't it be funny? It wasn't meant to be a song. It was just meant to be a thing, you know, for fun. When you kind of are messing around, you've kind of maybe finished a record and you're, I'm not going to write a new album. I'm just going to mess around for a bit. Mm. And um, I wrote a list of just words like conversation points and answered them and then it's found its way onto an album which I didn't expect at all it's quite embarrassing really when I'm talking about my turds <laughs> yeah, there is that. That, that's one, certainly one of the line that's one lines that sticks out firm if slightly irregular <laughs> the new album's called Office Politics mm. when's it out? roughly you don't have to be precise June June right it kind of loosely feels like concept album-y about, it's about oh. the alienating effect of modern life, maybe on older people. Yeah, write that down for me so I can say it to other journalists, because I was trying to think of what it was about. And it's all just slightly, well, it's about kind of work, but it's also about like, you know, uh, people's relation to like uh, the society and, and themselves and machines and... Yeah, all of that. 
So I'm going to use your line. Okay, you're very welcome to. <laughs> I mean, it starts with the, 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 the I think the one song that we are we can play at this point, Q Jumper. It sort of feels very pertinent to kind of. Is it a bit Brexity? <laughs> a lot of the album a bit is Trumpy. a bit... It's a bit... It is, it is though, isn't it? <laughs> I know, but it doesn't mention or have anything to do with either of those. No. It's that kind of feeling of slight with everything that's going on at the moment. I jump the queue, I jump the queue, I jump the queue because I'm smarter than you. So I love Q-Jump because it's got it very pertinent, not just to modern capitalism, but that thing that the way the tiered experience has become just part of what we're used to. So, you know, if you've got enough money, you can always just, yeah, as we say, like Felicity a, Huffman, you know, yeah. getting her kids into college and stuff yeah. like that. Yes, although it was, that's one of the few songs where I can go, this is what created this song. It was, I was driving down the M4 into Dublin and suddenly this guy in a Beamer drives up the inside lane and literally almost kills me and my daughter, you know, coming into the right-hand lane in front of me. You know that bit where you're overtaking someone else and somebody comes up on the inside and tries to squeeze between you and the car you're overtaking? And I thought, what is so bloody important, (laughs) you know, that you had to do that, you know? I just had to... Tell him off in song form. <laughs> the great thing is that there are these songs that sort of give you somewhere to hang this queasiness that we sort of feel about the last <laughs> few years. I can't think of another album that has done that. So, that's yay! A, I have found a niche. <laughs> to uh, really pinpoint people's queasiness. Yeah. <laughs> Another one for the adverts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've detained you here long enough, Neil. Neil Hannon, um, thank you for being uh, my guest on today's my pleasure. Needle Mythology. It's always lovely to catch up with you. Yes, absolutely. Next time. <laughs> Next time. You've been listening to the Needle Mythology podcast uh, with me, Pete Pafidis. This week's guest was Neil Hannon. Needle Mythology was produced by Laura Druce, brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flare Audio, inventors of the superb jet earphones. See you next time. GreatBigOwl.com